welcome to H.P. Lovecraft's The Shadow Over Innsmouth. Though these stately old avenues were ill-surfaced and unkempt, their elm-shaded dignity had not entirely departed. Mansion after mansion claimed my gaze, most of them decrepit and boarded up amidst neglected grounds, but one or two in each street showing signs of occupancy. In Washington Street, there was a row of four or five in excellent repair and with finely tended lawns and gardens. The most sumptuous of these, with wide-terraced parterres extending back the whole way to Lafayette Street, I took to be the home of Old Man Marsh, the afflicted refinery owner. In all these streets, no living thing was visible, and I wondered at the complete absence of cats and dogs from Innsmouth. Another thing which puzzled and disturbed me, even in some of the best-preserved mansions, was the tightly shuttered condition of many third-story and attic windows. Furtiveness and secretiveness seemed universal in this hushed city of alienage and death, and I could not escape the sensation of being watched from ambush on every hand by sly, staring eyes that never shut. I shivered as the cracked stroke of three sounded from a belfry on my left. Too well did I recall the squat church from which those notes came. Following Washington Street toward the river, I now faced a new zone of former industry and commerce, noting the ruins of a factory ahead, and seeing others, with the traces of an old railway station and covered railway bridge beyond, up the gorge on my right. The uncertain bridge now before me was posted with a warning sign, but I took the risk and crossed again to the south bank where traces of life reappeared. Furtive, shambling creatures stared cryptically in my direction, and more normal faces eyed me coldly and curiously. Innsmouth was rapidly becoming intolerable, and I turned down Payne Street toward the square in the hope of getting some vehicle to take me to Arkham before the still distant starting time of that sinister bus. It was then that I saw the tumble-down fire station on my left, and noticed the red-faced, bushy-bearded, watery-eyed old man in nondescript rags who sat on a bench in front of it talking with a pair of unkempt but not abnormal-looking firemen. This, of course, must be Zadok Allen, the half-crazed, licorice nonagerian whose tales of old Innsmouth and its shadow were so hideous and incredible. It must have been some imp of the perverse, or some sardonic pull from dark hidden sources, which made me change my plans as I did. I had long before resolved to limit my observations to architecture alone, and I was even then hurrying toward the square in an effort to get quick transportation out of this festering city of death and decay. But the sight of old Zadok Allen set up new currents in my mind and made me slacken my pace uncertainly. I had been assured that the old man could do nothing but hint at wild, disjointed, and incredible legends, and I had been warned that the natives made it unsafe to be seen talking to him. Yet the thought of this aged witness to the town's decay, with memories going back to the early days of ships and factories, was a lure that no amount of reason could make me resist. After all, the strangest and maddest of myths are often merely symbols or allegories based upon truth. 
and old Zadok must have seen everything which went on around Innsmouth for the last ninety years. Curiosity flared up beyond sense and caution, and in my youthful egotism I fancied I might be able to sift a nucleus of real history from the confused, extravagant outpouring I would probably extract with the aid of raw whiskey. I knew that I couldn't accost him then and there, for the fireman would surely notice and object. Instead, I reflected, I would prepare by getting some bootleg liquor at a place where the grocery boy had told me it was plentiful. Then I would lope near the fire station in apparent casualness and fall in with old Zadok after he'd started on one of his frequent rambles. The youth said that he was very restless, seldom sitting around the station for more than an hour or two at a time. A quart bottle of whiskey was easily, though not cheaply, obtained in the rear of a dingy variety store just off the square in Elliott Street. The dirty-looking fellow who waited on me had a touch of the staring Innsmouth look, but was quite civil in his way, being perhaps used to the custom of such convivial strangers, truckmen, gold buyers, and the like, as were occasionally in town. Re-entering the square, I saw that luck was with me, for, shuffling out of Payne Street around the corner of the Gilman House, I glimpsed nothing less than the tall, lean, tattered form of old Zadok himself. In accordance with my plan, I attracted his attention by brandishing my newly purchased bottle, and soon realized that he had begun to shuffle wistfully after me as I turned into Waite Street on my way to the most deserted region I could think of. I was steering my course by the map the grocery boy had prepared, and was aiming for the wholly abandoned stretch of southern waterfront which I had previously visited. The only people in sight there had been the fishermen on the distant breakwater, and by going a few squares south I could get beyond the range of these, finding a pair of seats on some abandoned wharf, and being free to question old Zadok unobserved for an indefinite time. Before I reached Main Street, I could hear a faint and wheezy, Hey, mister, behind me, and I presently allowed the old man to catch up and take copious pulls from the quart bottle. I began putting out feelers as we walked along the water street and turned southward amidst the omnipresent desolation and crazily tilted ruins, but found that the aged tongue did not loosen as quickly as I had expected. At length I saw a grass-grown opening toward the sea between crumbling brick walls, with the weedy length of an earth and masonry wharf projecting beyond. Piles of moss-covered stones near the water promised tolerable seats, and the scene was sheltered from all possible view by a ruined warehouse on the north. Here, I thought, was the ideal place for a long secret colloquy. "'so I guided my companion down the lane "'and picked out spots to sit in among the mossy stones. "'The air of death and desertion was ghoulish, "'and the smell of fish almost insufferable, "'but I resolved to let nothing deter me. "'About four hours remained for conversation "'if I were to catch the eight o'clock coach for Arkham, "'and I began to dole out more liquor to the ancient tippler. "'meanwhile eating my own frugal lunch. "'In my donations I was careful not to overshoot the mark, "'for I did not wish Zadok's vinous garrulousness "'to pass into a stupor. "'After an hour 
his furtive taciturnity showed signs of disappearing. But much to my disappointment, he still sidetracked my questions about Innsmouth and its shadow-haunted past. He would babble of current topics, revealing a wide acquaintance with newspapers and a great tendency to philosophize in a sententious village fashion. Toward the end of the second hour, I feared my quart of whiskey would not be enough to produce results, and was wondering whether I'd better leave old Zadok and go back for more. Just then, however, chance made the opening which my questions had been unable to make, and the wheezing ancient's rambling took a turn that caused me to lean forward and listen alertly. My back was toward the fishy-smelling sea, but he was facing it, and something or other had caused his wandering gaze to light on the low, distant line of Devil Reef, then showing plainly and almost fascinatingly above the waves. The sight seemed to displease him, for he began a series of weak curses, which ended in a confidential whisper and a knowing leer. He bent toward me, took hold of my coat lapel, and hissed out some hints that could not be mistaken. Thars where it all begun, that cursed place of all wickedness where the deep water starts. Gate of hell. Sheer drop down to a bottom no sound in line can catch. Old Captain Obed done it. Him that found out more than was good for him in the South Sea Islands. Everybody was in a bad way them days. Trade falling off, mills losing business, even the new ones, and the best of our men folks killed a privateering in the War of 1812, or lost with the Elysee Brig and the Ranger Snow. Both of them Gilman Ventures. Obed Marsh, she had, let me see, three ships afloat. Brigantine Columbia, the Brig Hetty, and the Bark Summitry Queen. He's the only one that's kept on with the East Indian and Pacific trade, though Esdras Martin's Barkentine Malay Pride made a venture as late as 28. Never was nobody like Captain Obed, old limb of Satan. <laughs> I can mind him a-telling about fern parts and calling all the folks stupid for going to Christian meeting and bearing their burdens meek and lowly. Says they order get better gods like some of the folks in the Injies. Gods as it'd bring them good fishing in return for their sacrifices and it'd really answer folks' prayers. Matt Elliott, his first mate, talked a lot too. Only he was again folks doing any heathen things. Told about an island east of Otaheite, where there was a lot of stone ruins older than anybody knew anything about. Kind of like them on Ponape in the Carolines, but with carvings of faces that looked like the big statues on Easter Island. There was a little volcanic island near there too, where there was other ruins with different carvings. Ruins all worn away like they'd been under a sea on, and with pictures of awful monsters all over them. Well, sir, Matt, he says the natives around Nar had all the fish they could catch, and sported bracelets 
and armlets and head rigs made out of queer kind of gold and covered with pictures of monsters just like the ones carved over the ruins on the little island. Sort of fish-like frogs or frogs like fishes that was drawed in all kinds of positions like they was human beings. Nobody could get out of them or they got all the stuff and all the other natives wondered how they managed to find fish in plenty even when the very next islands had lean pickings. Matt, he got to wandering too, and so did Captain Obed. Obed, he notices, besides, that lots of handsome young folks had dropped out of sight for good from year to year, and that there weren't many old folks around. Also, he thinks some of the folks look darn queer, even for Kanekis. It took Obed to get the truth out of them heathen. I don't know how he done it, but he begun by trading for the gold-like things they wore. Asked them where they come from and if they could get more. And finally wormed the story out of the old chief. Wallachia, they called him. Nobody but Obed would ever believe the old yeller devil. But the captain could read folks like they was books. <laughs> Nobody never believes me now when I tell them, and I don't suppose you will, young feller. They'll come to look at ye. You've kind of got them sharp reading eyes like Obed had. The old man's whisper grew fainter, and I found myself shuddering at the terrible and sincere portentousness of his intonation, even though I knew his tale could be nothing but drunken fantasy. Well, sir... Obed, he learnt that these things on this earth as most people never heard about and wouldn't believe if they did hear. It seems these Kanakees was sacrificing heaps of their young men and maidens to some kind of god, things that lived under the sea and getting all kinds of favor in return. They met the things on the little island with the queer ruins, and it seems them awful pictures of frogfish monsters was supposed to be pictures of these things. Maybe they was the kind of critters as got all the mermaid stories and such started. I don't know. They had all kinds of cities on the sea bottom, and this island was heaved up from thar. It seems they was some of the things alive in the stone buildings when the island come up a sudden to the surface. That's how the Kanakees got wind they was down there made sign talk as soon as they got over being skirt and pieced up a bargain afore long. Them things liked human sacrifices. Had had them ages before, but lost track of the upper world after time. What they done to the victims ain't for me to say, and I guess Obed wa not not too sharp about asking. But it was all right with the heathens, because they'd been having a hard time, and they was desperate about everything. They gave a certain number of young folks to the sea things twixt every year, May Eve and Halloween. Regular as could be. Also give them some of the carved knickknacks they made. What the things agreed to give in return was plenty of fish. They drove them in from all over the sea and a few gold-like things now and then. Well, as I says, the natives met the things on the little volcanic islet, going there in canoes with the sacrifices, etc. 
and bringing back any of the gold-like jewels as was coming to them. At first, the things didn't never go onto the main island, but after a time they come to want to. Seems they hankered are to mixing with the folks and having joint ceremonies on the big days, May Eve and Halloween. You see, they was able to live both in and out of the water, what they call amphibians, I guess. The Kanakees told them as how folks from the other islands might want to wipe them out if they got wind of their being there. But they says they don't care much because they could wipe out the whole brood of humans if they was a-willing to bother. That is, any as didn't have certain signs as was used once by the lost old ones, whoever they was. But not wanting to bother, they'd lay low when anybody visited the island. When I come to meeting with them toad-looking fishes, the Kanakees kind of balked. But finally they learnt something has put a new face on the matter. Seems that human folks has got a kind of relation to such water beasts. Did everything alive come out of the water one time? Once, and only needs a little change to go back again. Them things told the Kennekees that if they mixed bloods, there'd be children as would look human at first, but later turn more and more like the things, till finally they'd take to the water and join the main lot of things down there. And this is the important part, young feller. Them as turned into fish things and went into the water wouldn't never die. Them things never died except they was killed violent. Well, sir, it seems by the time Obed knowed them islanders, they was all full of fish blood from them deep water things. When they got old and begun to show it, they was kept hid till they felt like taking to the water and quitting the place. Some was more touched than the others, and some never did change quite enough to take to the water. But mostly they turned out just the way them things said. Them as was born more like the things changed early. But them as was nearly human sometimes stayed on the island till they was past seventy though they'd usually go down under for trial trips afore that. Folks as had took to the water generally come back a good deal to visit, so as a man often be talking to his own five-times great-grandfather, who left the dry land a couple of hundred years or so. Everybody got out of the idea of dying, except in canoe wars with the other islanders, or as sacrifices to the sea gods down below or from snake bite, or plague, or sharp galloping ailments, or something before they could take to the water, but simply looked forward to a kind of change that wasn't a bit horrible after a while. They thought what they'd got was well worth all they'd had to give up, and I guess Obed kind of come to think the same himself when he chewed over old Wallachia's story a bit. Wallachia, though, was one of the few as hadn't gotten none of the fish blood, being of a royal line that intermarried with royal lines on other islands. Wallachia, he showed Obed a lot of rites and incantations as had to do with the sea things, and let him see 
some of the folks in the village as had changed a lot from human shape. Somehow or other, though, he never would let him see one of the regular things from right out of the water. In the end, he gave him a funny kind of thingamajig made out of lead or something that he said would bring up the fish things from any place in the water where they might be a nest of them. The idea was to drop it down with the right kind of prayers and such. While Akia allowed as the things were scattered all over the world, so as anybody that looked about could find a nest of them and bring them up if they wanted. Well, Obed's number one man, Matt, he didn't like this business at all and wanted Obed should keep away from the island. But the captain was sharp for gain and found he could get them gold-like things so cheap it'd pay him to make a specialty of them. Things went on that way for years, and Obed got enough of that gold-like stuff to make him start the refinery in Waite's old run-down fulling mill. He didn't dast sell the pieces like they was, for folks would be all the time asking questions. All the same, his crews would get a piece and dispose of it now and then, even though they was swore to keep quiet, and he let his women folks wear some of the pieces as was more human-like. Than the most. Well, come about 38, when I was seven year old, Obed he found the island people all wiped out between voyages. Seems the other islanders had got wind of what was going on, and it took matters into their own hands. Suppose they must have had, arter all, them old magic signs as the sea thing says was the only things they was afeard of. No telling what any of them canakees will chance to get a holt of when the sea bottom throws up some island with ruins older than the deluge. Pious cusses these was. They didn't leave nothing standing on either the main island or the little volcanic islet, except what parts of the ruins was too big to knock down. In some places, there was little stones strewed about, like charms with something on them like what you call a swastika nowadays. Probably them was the old one's signs. Folks all wiped out, no trace, no gold-like things, and none of the nearby canakees had breathed a word about the matter. Wouldn't even admit they'd ever even been people on that island. That naturally hit Obed pretty hard, seeing as his normal trade was doing very poor, it hit the whole of Innsmouth, too, because in seafaring days, what profited the master of a ship generally profited the crew proportionate. Most of the folks around the town took the hard times kind of sheep-like and resigned, but they was in bad shape because the fishing was petering out and the mills weren't doing none too well. Then's the time Obed he begun a cursing at the folks for being dull sheep and praying to a Christian heaven as didn't help him none. He told him he'd know the folks as prayed to gods that give something ye really need, and says if a good bunch of men would stand by him, he could maybe get a hold of certain powers as would bring plenty of fish and quite a bit of gold. Of course, them as served on the Sumatra Queen and seed the island knowed what he meant and want none too anxious to get close to see things like they'd heard tell on. But them as didn't know what was all about, 
got kind of swayed by what Obed had to say and begun to ask him what he could do to set him on the way to faith as it bring him results. And here the old man faltered, mumbled, and lapsed into a moody and apprehensive silence. Glancing nervously over his shoulder, and then turning back to stare fascinatedly at the distant black reef. When I spoke to him, he did not answer, so I knew I would have to let him finish the bottle. The insane yarn I was hearing interested me profoundly, for I fancied there was contained within it a sort of crude allegory based upon the strangenesses of Innsmouth and elaborated by an imagination at once creative and full of scraps of exotic legend. Not for a moment did I believe that the tale had any really substantial foundation, but nonetheless the account held a hint of genuine terror, if only because it brought in references to strange jewels clearly akin to the malign tiara I'd seen at Newburyport. Perhaps the ornaments had, after all, come from some strange island, and possibly the wild stories were lies of the bygone Obed himself, rather than of this antique toper. I handed Zadok the bottle, and he drained it to the last drop. It was curious how he could stand so much whiskey, for not even a trace of thickness had come into his high, wheezy voice. He licked the nose of the bottle and slipped it into his pocket, then beginning to nod and whisper softly to himself, I bent close to catch any articulate words he might utter, and thought I saw a sardonic smile behind the stained, bushy whiskers. Yes, he was really forming words, and I could grasp a fair proportion of them. Poor Matt. Matt, he allus was aging it. Tried to line up the folks on his side, and had long talks with the preachers. No use. They run the Congregational Parson out of town, and the Methodist feller quit. Never did see resolved Babcock, the Baptist person, again. Wrath of Jehovah. I was a mighty little critter, but I heard what I heard, and I seen what I seen. Dagon, and Ashtoreth, Belial, and Beelzebub, golden calves, and the idols of Canaan and the Philistines, Babylonish abominations, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Abharshan. He stopped again, and from the look in his watery blue eyes, I feared he was close to a stupor after all. But when I gently shook his shoulder, he turned on me with astonishing alertness and snapped out some more obscure phrases. Don't believe me, eh? <laughs> you just tell me, young feller, why Captain Obed and twenty-odd other folks used to row about the Devil Reef in the dead of the night and chant things so loud you could hear them all over town when the wind was right. Tell me that, eh? And tell me why Obed was always dropping heavy things down into the deep water to the other side of the reef where the bottom shoots down like a cliff lower than ye can sound. You tell me what he done with that funny-shaped lead thingamajig as Wallachia gave him, eh, boy? And what did they all howl on May Eve? And then again, next Halloween. 
And why did the new church parsons, fellers as used to be sailors, wear them queer rows and cover themselves with gold-like things, Obed Brung? Eh? You tell me, boy. The watery blue eyes were almost savage and maniacal now, and the dirty white beard bristled electrically. Old Zadok probably saw me shrink back, for he had begun to cackle evilly. Hey, <laughs> begin to see now, huh? Maybe you'd like to, maybe you'd like to have been me in them days, when I seed things at night out to sea from the cupola top of my house. Oh, I could tell ye, little pitchers have big ears, and I wasn't missing nothing of what was gossiped about Captain Obed and the folks out to the reef. <laughs> How about the night I took my pa's shift glass up to the cupola and seed the reef a bristling thick with shapes that dove off quick soon as the moon rose? Obed and the folks was in a dory, but them shapes dove off the far side into the deep water and never come up. How'd you like to be a little shaver alone up in a cupola a watching shapes as weren't human shapes? Hey? The old man was getting hysterical, and I began to shiver with a nameless alarm. He laid a gnarled claw on my shoulder, and it seemed to me that its shaking was not altogether that of mirth. Suppose one night ye seed something heavy heaved off an Obed's dory beyond the reef, and then learned the next day a young feller was missing from home. Eh? Did anybody ever see hide or hair? Hiram Gilman again, did they? And Nick Pierce? And Louie Waite? And Adirondam Southwick? And Henry Garrison? Eh? Eh? Shapes talking sign language with their hands. Them as had real hands. Well, sir, that was the time Obed begun to get on his feet again. Folks, these three darters are wearing gold-like things as nobody never see them on before. And smoke started coming out of the refinery chimney. Other folks were prospering too. Fish began to swarm into the harbor fit to kill. And heaven knows what size cargoes we begun to ship at the Newburyport, Arkham, Boston. T'was then Obed got the old branch railroad put through. Some Kingsport fishermen heard about the catch and come up in sloops. But they was all lost. Nobody ever seen them again. And just then, our folks organized the Esoteric Order of Dagon and bought Masonry Hall, often cavalry commandery for it. <laughs> Matt Elliott was a mason and again the selling, but he dropped out of sight just then. Remember? I ain't saying Obed was set on heaven things just like they was on that Kennecke Isle. I don't think he aimed at first to do no mixing, no raise no young'uns to take to the water and turn into fishes with eternal life. He just wanted them gold things and was willing to pay heavy. And I guess the others was satisfied for a while. But come 46, the town done some looking and thinking for itself. Too many folks missing. Too much wild preaching at meeting of a Sunday. 
Too much talk about that reef. I guess I done a bit of telling select man Mallory what I seen from that cupola. There was a party one night as followed Obed's crowd out to the reef, and I heard shots betwixt the dories. Next day, Obed and 32 others was in jail, and everybody a wondering just what was afoot and just what charge again him could he got to hold. God, if anybody'd looked ahead. A couple of weeks later, when nothing had been thrown into the sea for that long, Zadok was showing signs of fright and exhaustion, and I let him keep silence for a while, though glancing apprehensively at my watch. The tide had turned and was coming in now, and the sound of the waves seemed to arouse him. I was glad of that tide, for at high water the fishy smell might not be so bad. Again I strained to catch his whispers. That awful night, I seed them. I was up in the cupola, hordes of them, swarms of them, all over the reef, and swimming up the harbor into the Minuxet. God, what happened in the streets of Innsmouth that night? They rattled our door, but Pa wouldn't open it. Then he clumb out on the kitchen window with his musket to find Selectman Mowry and see what he could do. Mounds of the dead and the dying, shots and screams, shouting in the old square and town square and new church green, jail throat open, proclamation, treason, called it the plague when folks come in and found half our people missing. Nobody left but them as it join in with Obed and them things, or else keep quiet. Never hear to my paw no more. The old man was panting and perspiring profusely. His grip on my shoulder tightened. Everything cleared up in the morning, but there was traces. Obed, he kind of takes charge and says things is going to be changed. Others will worship with us at meeting time, and certain houses has got to entertain guests. They wanted to mix like they'd done with the Kennekees, and he, for one, didn't feel bound to stop them. Far gone was Obed, just like a crazy man on the subject. He says they brung us fish and treasure, and should have what they hankered after. Nothing was to be different on the outside, only we was to keep shy strangers if we knowed what was good for us. We all had to take the oath of Dagon, and later on, they was second and third O's that some of us took. Them as had helped special would get special rewards. Gold and such. No use bulking, for there was millions of them down there. They'd rather not start rising and wiping out humankind, but if they was give away and forced to, they could do a lot toward just that. We didn't have them old charms to cut them off like folks in the South Sea did, and them Kennekees wouldn't never give away their secrets. Yield up enough sacrifices and savage knickknacks and harborage in the town when they wanted it, and they'd let well enough alone. Wouldn't bother no strangers as might bear tales outside, that is, without they got prying. All in the band of the faithful, order of Dagon, 
and the children should never die, but go back to the Mother Hydra and Father Dagon, what we all come from once. La, la, Ketolhu Fragan. Fin glui mignath, Ketolhu riehi, riahi. Ketolhu riehi, wagana, funtagon. Old Zadok was fast lapsing into stark raving, and I held my breath. Poor old soul. To what pitiful depths of hallucination had his liquor plus his hatred of the decay, alienage, and disease around him, brought that fertile, imaginative brain. He began to moan now, and tears were coursing down his channeled cheeks into the depths of his beard. God, what i seen since I was fifteen year old. Mene, mene, teko a barson. The folks as was missing. And then this kilt themselves. Them as told things in Arkham or Ipswich or such places was all called crazy. Like you're calling me right now. But God, what I seen. They'd have killed me long ago for what I know. Only I'd tucked the first and second oaths of Dagon off to Nobed. So was protected. Unless in a jury of them proved I told things known and deliberate. But I wouldn't take the third oath. I'd have died rather than take that. I got was around Civil War time. When children born sect 46 began to grow up. Some of them, that is. I was afeard. Never did no prying after that awful night. And never seen one of them close up in all my life. That is... Never no full-blooded one. I went to the war, and if I'd have had any guts or sense, I'd have never come back, but settled away from here. But folks wrote me, things weren't so bad. That, I suppose, was because the government draft men was in town after 63. Out of the war, it was just as bad again. People begun to fall off. Mills and shops shut down. Shipping stopped. And the harbor choked up. Railroad give up. But they, they never stopped swimming in and out of the river from that cursed reef of Satan. And more and more attic windows got boarded up. And more and more noises was heard in houses as weren't supposed to have nobody in them. Folks outside had their stories about us. Suppose you heard a plenty on them, seeing what questions you asked. Stories about things they've seen now and then, and about that queer jewelry that still comes in from some Mars and ain't quite all melted up. But nothing never gets definite. Nobody'll believe nothing. They call them gold like things pirate loot, and allow the Izmith folks has furrin blood, or is distempered, or something. Besides, them that lives here shoo off as many strangers as they can, and encourage the rest not to get too curious, especially round night time. Beasts balk at the critters. Hosses wasn't mules. But when they got autos, that was all right. 
In 46, Captain Obed took a second wife that nobody in the town never see. Some says he didn't want to, but was made to by them, as he called in. Had three children by her. Two has disappeared young, but one gal has looked like anybody else and was educated in Europe. Obed finally got her married off by a trick to an Arkham feller as didn't suspect nothing. But nobody outside have nothing to do with Innsmouth folks now. Barnabas Mosh that runs the refinery now is Obed's grandson by his first wife, son of Onesiphorus, his eldest son, but his mother was another of them as one never seed outdoors. Right now Barnabas is about changed, can't shut his eyes no more, and is all out of shape. They'd say he still wears clothes, but he'll take to the water soon. Maybe he's tried it already. They do sometimes go down for little spells before they go for good. Ain't been seed about in public for nigh on ten year. Don't know how his poor wife can feel. She come from Itzwich, and they nigh lynched Barnabas when he courted her fifty-odd year ago. Obed, he died in 78, and all the next generation is gone now. The first wife's children dead, and the rest... God knows. The sound of the incoming tide was now very insistent, and little by little it seemed to change the old man's mood from maudlin tearfulness to watchful fear. He would pause now and then to renew those nervous glances over his shoulder, or out toward the reef, and despite the wild absurdity of his tale, I couldn't help beginning to share his vague apprehensiveness. Zadok now grew shriller, and seemed to be trying to whip up his courage with louder speech. "'Hey, you! Why don't you say something? How'd you like to be living in a town like this, with everything a-rotten and a-dying, and boarded-up monsters crawling about bleating and barking and hopping round black cellars and attics every way we turn? Hey? How'd you like to hear the howl the night after night from the churches and the order of Dagon Hall?' "'and know what's doing part of the howling. "'How'd ye like to hear what comes from that awful reef "'every May Eve in Hollow Mass? "'Hey? "'Think the old man's crazy, hey? "'Well, sir, let me tell you, "'that ain't the worst.' "'Zadok was really screaming now, "'and the mad frenzy of his voice "'disturbed me more than I care to own. "'Curse ye!' Don't sit there a-staring at me with them eyes. I tell Obed Marsh he's in hell, and he's got to stay thar. In hell, I says. Can't get me. I ain't done nothing nor told nobody nothing. Oh, you, young feller. Well, even if I ain't told nobody nothing yet, I'm a-going to now. You just sit still and listen to me, boy. This is what I ain't never told nobody. I says I didn't do no prying either that night, but I found out things just the same. You want to know what the real horror is, hey? Well, it's this. It ain't what them fish devils has done, but what they're gone to do. They're bringing things up out of where they come from into the town and been doing it for years and slacking up lately. 
Them houses north of the river, betwixt water and main streets, is full of them. Them devils and what they brung. And when they get ready, I say when they get ready, ever hear tell of a shogoff? Hey, you hear me? I tell you, I know what them things be. I seen them one night when... Ah! 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 The hideous suddenness and inhuman frightfulness of the old man's shriek almost made me faint. His eyes, looking past me toward the malodorous sea, were positively starting from his head, while his face was a mask of fear worthy of Greek tragedy. His bony claw dug monstrously into my shoulder, and he made no motion as I turned my head to look at whatever he had glimpsed. There was nothing that I could see, only the incoming tide, with perhaps one set of ripples more local than the long flun line of breakers. But now Zadok was shaking me, and I turned back to watch the melting of that fear-frozen face into a chaos of twitching eyelids and mumbling gums. Presently his voice came back, albeit as a trembling whisper. Get out of here! Get out of here! They've seen us! Get out for your life! Don't wait for nothing! They know now! Run for it! Quick! Out of this town! Another heavy wave dashed against the loosening masonry of the bygone wharf and changed the mad ancient's whisper to another inhuman and blood-curdling scream. Before I could recover my scattered wits, he had relaxed his clutch on my shoulder and dashed wildly inland toward the street, reeling northward around the ruined warehouse wall. I glanced back at the sea, but there was nothing there, and when I reached Water Street and looked along it to the north, there was no remaining trace of Zadok Allen. I can hardly describe the mood in which I was left by this harrowing episode, an episode at once mad and pitiful, grotesque and terrifying. The grocery boy had prepared me for it, yet the reality left me nonetheless bewildered and disturbed. Puerile though the story was, old Zadok's insane earnestness and horror had communicated to me a mounting unrest which joined with my earlier sense of loathing for the town and its blight of intangible shadow. Later I might sift the tale and extract some nucleus of historic allegory, but just now I wished to put it out of my head. The hour had grown perilously late. My watch said 7.15, and the Arkham bus left Town Square at 8. So I tried to give my thoughts as neutral and practical a cast as possible. Meanwhile, walking rapidly through the deserted streets of gaping roofs and leaning houses toward the hotel where I had checked my valise and would find my bus. Though the golden light of late afternoon gave the ancient roofs and decrepit chimneys an air of mystic loveliness and peace, I could not help glancing over my shoulder now and then. I would surely be very glad to get out of the malodorous and fear-shadowed Innsmouth and wish there were some other vehicle than the bus driven by that sinister-looking fellow, Sergeant. Yet I did not hurry too precipitately, for there were architectural details worth viewing at every silent corner, and I could easily, I calculated, cover the necessary distance in half an hour. 
studying the grocery youth's map and seeking a route I had not traversed before. I chose Marsh Street instead of State for my approach to Town Square. Near the corner of Fall Street, I began to see scattered groups of furtive whispers, and when I finally reached the square, I saw that almost all the loiterers were congregated around the door of the Gilman House. It seemed as if many bulging, watery, unwinking eyes looked oddly at me as I claimed my valise in the lobby, and I hoped that none of these unpleasant creatures would be my fellow passengers on the coach. The bus, rather early, rattled in with three passengers somewhat before eight, and an evil-looking fellow on the sidewalk muttered a few indistinguishable words to the driver. Sergeant threw out a mailbag and a roll of newspapers and entered the hotel, while the passengers, the same men whom I'd seen arriving in Newburyport that morning, shambled to the sidewalk and exchanged some faint guttural words with a loafer in a language I could have sworn was not English. I boarded the empty coach and took the same seat I had taken before, but was hardly settled before Sergeant reappeared and began mumbling in a throaty voice of peculiar repulsiveness. It was, it appeared, in very bad luck. There had been something wrong with the engine, despite the excellent time made from Newburyport, and the bus could not complete the journey to Arkham. No, it could not possibly be repaired that night, nor was there any other way of getting transportation out of Innsmouth, either to Arkham or elsewhere. Sergeant was sorry, but I would have to stop over at the Gilman. Probably the clerk would make the price easy for me, but there was nothing else to do. Almost dazed by this sudden obstacle, and violently dreading the fall of night in this decaying and half-unlighted town, I left the bus and re-entered the hotel lobby, where the sullen, queer-looking night clerk told me I could have room 428 on next to the top floor. Large, but without running water, for a dollar. Hello everyone, a special message. If you enjoy 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, please let us know with a review, especially you Apple listeners, since they offer the easiest route to reviews, and they matter a whole lot in the rankings industry. So we're asking that you take a couple of minutes and say something nice about the show. Here, here are some recent ones for your enjoyment. This one, five stars. Great podcasts. Love these. Makes my drive go faster. From a busy mama. U.S. And this one, edifying. Five stars. Stories by the greatest authors told by a master storyteller. That one from Hats and Boots in Great Britain. And this one, great stories and narration. I was so immersed today in part one of To Build a Fire by Jack London that I felt like I was there in Alaska with the protagonist. I thought I knew cold when I was in New York during the winter of 1999, but London's story, along with the convincing narration, elicited a real sense of fear in me. That from Johnny Gizmo, and that's U.S. And this one, another top-notch 1001 podcast. This one from Kay Paint. Great podcast as usual. I laughed so hard while listening to The Ransom of Red Chief. I thought my sides were going to split. Keep up the great work, Mr. Hagedorn. This from Kyle. And this one, 1001 Short Stories and Tales. This show is always interesting and entertaining. I love hearing stories that I've already read and hearing new ones for the first time. 
I'd love to hear some more Lovecraft, The Color Out of Space, or The Shadow Over Innsmouth. Also, The Most Dangerous Game and The Lottery, if you haven't done them. And by the way, that's P. Gabru, five stars. That's U.S. And I hope you're enjoying The Shadow Over Innsmouth. Also, we did do The Most Dangerous Game. Just check it in our show archives. Take a look back there. And it's definitely there in two parts. So please enjoy. And this one, awesome, by Vijendra. This is one of the best podcasts I've ever come across. And with such a wonderful host, you can't ask for more. This podcast has touched my life and heart in so many different ways. Thank you for doing such wonderful shows. Thank you all very, very much for taking the little bit of time it takes to do these reviews. I appreciate them, and it helps keep us way up there in the rankings. Thank you so much. Stay tuned for part three of The Shadow Over Innsmouth, coming soon. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. We'll be back soon.